You have upgraded to 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 8, Eyes Forward. Hey, this is Remy. The title card this week comes from Ash2x3zb9cy, which is an upgrade for HB that came in What Lies Ahead, and which I'll talk more about in a later segment. In this week's episode, we try to move a little bit beyond the basics and take a step towards strategy in a couple of our big segments. But to begin with, we're going to get into some spoilers for the upcoming uh, new booster pack in the Reboot Project. Precognition. Mind and Mayhem. Week 1. Last week we covered the Reflections booster pack, which is the first booster that was released late last year for the Reboot Project. Coming up at the end of July is going to be the second booster pack of 30 cards. Unlike Reflections, which had two new cards for each faction and two rebooted cards, so two old ones that had been modified in most cases, for most of the factions, the distribution is lumpy for this one. There are going to be two new cards for Jinteki, NBN, and Wayland on the corpse side, and Criminal Shaper on the other side, on the runner side, and one for each of the mini factions, and one neutral card, but there will be eight Haas Bioroid cards and eight Anarch cards. And while Reflections had 14 brand new cards and 16 rebooted, Mind and Mayhem has 20 new cards only 10 rebooted cards. In this past week, four cards have been spoiled, the two Jinteki cards and the two Shaper cards. Let's take a look at them. First up for Jinteki is Caterpillar, a mythic ice with a res cost of two and a strength of one. It's also three influence. The text reads, When you res this ice, place three power counters on it. When your turn begins, remove one power counter. Then flip this card if there are none. The subroutine is the runner loses one credit. When you flip the card, it turns into Monarch. It is now a barrier with a res cost of two and a strength of three. The text reads, the strength of this ice cannot be lowered. It also has three subroutines, do one net damage, end the run, and do one net damage. So let's talk about this idea of a card that flips. And when we say flip, to me, the way to think about it is is like a three-sided card. This makes sense in my head, where you have, it's an, in an unresed state, and then you res it, and then you can turn it again to a different 
resed state. So it's not flipping between a literal card to the back of the card and the front of the card. It's like there's two different fronts of the cards. Well, here's the description that the big boy provided for the concept of a flippable card. A card with two faces, such as Caterpillar, is called a flippable card. One card is considered the front face, and the other the reverse face. This is indicated by the reverse face having a black title box. If a game effect instructs you to flip a card, it transforms into the card on the other side and has the title, card text, types, and subtypes shown on the new side instead of those on the old side. In paper play, indicate this by removing the card from its sleeve, turning it over, and inserting it back. A flip card always enters play as its front face. While not in play, it is also always considered to be the card depicted on its front face. If a card leaves play while flipped to the reverse side, it should therefore be flipped back to the front side as it leaves play to avoid confusion. And then we have five clarifications. Whether a card is rezzed or derezzed is independent from whether it is flipped or unflipped. So if Caterpillar is first rezzed, then flipped to Monarch, then derezzed, if it is rezzed again, it would be as Monarch, not as Caterpillar. This is because derezzing a card does not cause it to leave play. Because flip cards flip to their front face when leaving play, there is no way for a flippable card in your hand, deck, or discard pile to be flipped to its reverse face. Flipping a card is not installing or playing it. Caterpillar flipping to Monarch will not trigger ETF or Ice Analyzer. For paper play, using flip cards requires either opaque sleeves or substitute cards. Counters or other cards hosted on a card remain in place if the card is flipped. So if Rook is hosted on Caterpillar and Caterpillar flips to Monarch, Rook will be hosted on Monarch. All right, a lot less information about the other Shaper card spoiled this week, which is Thicket, a barrier with a res cost of four and a strength of five, which costs two influence. The text reads, the runner may discard a card from their grip to break any subroutine on Thicket, and its subroutines are two end-the-run subroutines. Let's now look at the two new Shaper cards. The first Shaper card is Future Proofing. It is a run event with a cost of two. It also is two influence. Make a run on HQ or R&D. When that run ends, if it was successful, flip this card, install it, ignoring all costs, and place six credits on it. The flip side of future proofing is Epiphany, with a number four, a numeral four in place of the A in Epiphany. Epiphany is a program with an install cost of two. You will use hosted credits to install and use icebreakers. And the other 
New Shaper card is a rebooted card from the Moombad cycle, Patron, a connection resource with an install cost of two, that's modified from its previous install cost of three. It is three influence. When your turn begins, you may choose a server. The first time you make a successful run on that server this turn, instead of accessing cards, draw two cards. The goal the big boy has stated is to spoil four cards each week. Those are the four from week one. I will cover them week by week as we go, but if you want to get in on the discussion, if you want to see the spoilers as they come, that's what the Reboot Discord server is for. There's no cost. There's no fear. You can go in there and lurk. It's not a problem. Uh, The links are in the show notes. Mandatory Upgrades Ash 2X3ZB9CY This is only the seventh upgrade for the game, and the third for Haas Bioroid, though really it's only the second defensive upgrade. Now I'm going to define defensive upgrade as an upgrade that makes it more challenging for the runner when accessing the server. Right, so corporate troubleshooter you know that really is a defensive upgrade too but it's going to keep try to keep the runner out of the server away from the server in interacting with ice the only other in server trying to stop the runner last ditch effort is red herrings in nbn which forces the runner to pay an extra five credits to steal an agenda in this case and if the corp has the money advantage There's nothing the runner can do to get in. Ash has a res cost of two, a trash cost of three, and also two influence cost. That two means it's very splashable into other factions. The ability on Ash is a trace four when the run is successful, which means before accessing, this trace four happens. That's a very strong trace. If it is successful, the runner can't access anything else in the server. And imagine if you got this in NBN, now it could be a trace six before you've spent any money. So this is particularly valuable if you're trying to score a three-pointer, or really any time that you need to leave an agenda in a server for more than one turn. Ash will keep it out. You know, what you could do, technically is you could put two ashes in a server, or even three. Uh, There's no limit to the number of upgrades you can have in a server. You just can't have them all resed at the same time. So imagine the runner comes in, you res ash, you win the trace, the runner trashes ash, runs in again, you res ash again, and so on. You can see how this can keep it, uh, be a very challenging thing for the runner to deal with. That's why Ash qualifies as a mandatory upgrade for many situations where you'll want to protect your your agendas and sometimes even your assets. Anonymous tip. The three phases of the game. 
To this point in the history of the podcast, most of the suggestions and comments I've been sharing have been of a tactical nature. Uh, What you're going to do from turn to turn, or even from click to click, especially in the first couple of turns. But in order to continue improving in your play of Netrunner, you need to move beyond the in the moment tactical decisions and look to the broader sweep of the game. This is the difference between tactics and strategy. Basically, in gaming, a strategy is the overall scope of what you're trying to do to achieve victory. And your tactics are how you implement that strategy in the moment. A game that is a tactical game is hard to plan from one turn to the next. Whereas a game that is a strategy game gives you the possibility of being to being able to craft an overall strategy that you can follow uh, through the course of the game. Now, obviously, any card game is going to have a healthy dose of tactics because you can't plot out the end of the game from the start since you won't know what cards you'll draw, which is different from a game with perfect information, like, say, chess, where you can see everything that's going on all the time. Uh, But it's improving at the strategy of the game that really marks the difference between a casual player and a player who can perform well in tournaments. Now, once again, I have to caveat that my own current skill level is not that high. I am not a player who could currently perform well in tournaments. I've stated this before, but when I originally played the game, you know, a decade ago, I intentionally limited myself so that I wouldn't supersede the abilities of my at the time, 10-year-old son. And, and then I never really moved past that. I, I never really became more than a casual player. You could say I was deliberately casual. But now, as I'm exploring the game more on my own, I really want to improve in my play. I really want to understand. You know, I listened to all the Netrunner podcasts that came out over the years Uh, Run Last Click, and Breaking News, and um, Terminal 7, and Agenda 7, and all of the podcasts. I mean, there were more. There have been a lot. And certainly by the end of the run for FFG, those podcasts had, I mean, they were usually talking about tournament-level stuff, and most of it went over my head. I still enjoyed listening to it, but... I'd like to be able to understand those things a little better. And so I hope that as this podcast continues, as I have the opportunity to play games and discuss the game in a more analytical way, that that'll be something I'm able to do. So the next big topic that I want to discuss is archetypes. But I feel like before I can talk about archetypes, I need to talk about this three phases of the game. So in an average game, you're going to have maybe 12 to 15 turns per side. Obviously, it can be much shorter. It can be quite a bit longer as well, but that's the average. In the early game, just the first couple of turns, that's the first phase, the early game. The corp is not fully protected. So either they have no ice, or the ice they have is not rezzed, or they don't have enough money to res it. That means the runner can get in. So the early game advantage is the runner. In the mid-game, the corp now has some protection, 
on all their servers. So the runner can't get in as easily. They have to go find tools. Now the advantage swings to the corporation. In the late game, as both sides have built up fully, the runner has their full rig or all their tools, now corp servers are not safe again, so the advantage once again swings to the runner. It's important to understand this structure because certain cards, certain combinations, and crucially, certain decks or deck types are built to perform better at certain stages in the game, certain phases of the game. Just to use a very simple example, Ice Wall. This is a one-cost, one-strength barrier. It's advanceable, you can make it stronger, but it just ends the run. Ice Wall is a very good early game card. It's inexpensive for the Corp to res, and the runner is just stopped if they don't have a fractor, right? It requires them to have a fractor or some other way to deal with the card, whether it be inside job, which is a one-time use, or parasite to destroy the ice, but it forces the runner to do something. And understanding this structure of the game, this three-phase structure is important because the tactics and strategies of play shift and change depending on which phase of the game you're in. As always, when talking about, seems like anything about Netrunner, we're just painting with broad strokes here. There are many exceptions. Plus, things can happen which shift between phases. For example, just going back to the idea of Ice Wall, let's say the Corp installs Ice Wall, and then in the mid-game, as the runner finds the fractor, Ice Wall is basically pointless. But if the Corp can find a way to destroy that fractor, oh, well, now Ice Wall is turned back on again. The runner, in some sense, has fallen back uh, into an earlier stage of the game. So concept like this will be referenced in the upcoming weeks as we go to discuss different deck archetypes within the game. And we'll expand on this more in the very next segment. Archived Memories for this time around is the article, The Three Phases of Netrunner, by David Sutcliffe on his blog, The Satellite Uplink. The date of this article is October 6th, 2013, so we're a full year past the launch of the game, well into the spin cycle, the second cycle for Netrunner. But the concepts here apply no matter where you are, I think. Again, once again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe these concepts apply. So we have here a somewhat lengthy article that I'm just going to read. When you start playing anything like a new TCG or LCG, it can be really confusing. You're trying to understand the rule book with one hand and then taking in new cards you've never seen before with the other. What does that card say? What does that mean? Is it good? Can I do anything about it? It's like being cast adrift on the ocean, unending waves in every direction, and no fixed landmarks. That's not necessarily a bad thing, though, so long as you're enjoying the journey. And this is how many players experience and enjoy TCG LCGs. 
They break out the cards, with no intention of doing anything more than seeing where it takes them. Sometimes they win, sometimes they lose, but they enjoy the journey. One of the key moments in mastering a game, however, is when you stop to take the time to look for the common landmarks unique to that game. Every time you play, the cards will arrive in a different order, so it will never be exactly the same. But you will find patterns behind the cards that help you to take control. No longer are you just enjoying the experience of being swept away by the game's currents. Now, you've got a say in where you want it to take you and in how you're going to get there. Netrunner has a pattern to it. Every game of Netrunner is different, but every game is a duel between a runner and a corporation. Every game of Netrunner is different, but every game sees the runner and corporation faced with similar problems that require similar responses. Recognizing the patterns in the game and where you fit into that pattern helps you to understand what you need to do. It can help you in deck building, to put in cards that will work towards a goal rather than working against each other. And it can help you during the game to help you make the right play for that point of the game. Disclaimer. I'm about to make a lot of generalizations about Netrunner games. Not all of these are true all the time. There are exceptions. Games are different. Decks are different and aim for different objectives. But these generalizations will be true more often than not. The Three Phases of Netrunner 1. Early Game Runner Advantage The early game in Netrunner is the first few turns, and the defining characteristic of this portion of the game is that it puts a huge amount of time pressure onto the corporation. The corp starts the game with a to-do list as long as your arm and simply not enough hours in the day, or clicks in the turn, to do them all. Protect HQ, protect R&D, establish remote servers, protect remote servers, gain the cash needed to pay for all of the above. Typically, it will take the corp three or four turns to do all this. And while the corp is struggling to install some web protection more robust than Norton antivirus, the runner has a chance to exploit the holes in the corp's defenses. This explains the common adage, run early, run often. The early game belongs to the runner because the corp is starting from zero, while the runner can run from click one. Corporations often aim to bring the first phase of the game to an end as quickly as possible, which is usually done by playing a suite of cheap ice that helps you to secure your servers without spending too much cash. If you rely on ice that costs four or five credits as your early defense, you can res a piece of ice on one server, but then you'll be struggling to protect other servers. Now, the key word I used here is secure the servers, which isn't necessarily the same thing as ensuring the runner can't access them by using ice that ends their run. 
While the humble ice wall is the king of the early game by locking up a server for a single credit, you can use other effects like Neural Katana, Hunter, Data Raven, etc., to secure a server simply by making it too painful for the runner to run on it. On the runner's side of the equation, some runner decks try to make Phase 1 last as long as possible by disrupting the corpse's ability to get his basic defenses set up. This is a strategy that you probably associate more with criminal runners who use cards like Account Siphon, Forged Activation Orders, and Inside Job to stretch the cash of the corp to the breaking point. While the Anarchs bring some early game pain in the shape of cards like Vamp, uh, which is an Account Siphon-like card for Anarch coming in the second data pack, and Parasite. 2. Mid-game. Corp Advantage. The second phase of the game is underway, once the corp has set up his defenses to the extent that the runner now has to spend time and resources going away to build a rig, a mix of economy and icebreakers that will let the runner efficiently attack the corp's defenses. It is in this second phase that the corporation is best able to pursue its goals, relatively safe behind ice that the runner doesn't want to tangle with. A common trap for a court player to fall into here is to immediately reinvest in deeper and deeper defenses rather than using this window to advance and score agendas. The incremental advantage you gain from deeper ice towers will make a difference later in the game, but in this stage, simply having a codegate sentry barrier that ends the run is keeping the runner out. You don't need chum and corporate troubleshooter installed to make sure that happens. The more you spend time adding redundancy to your ice layers, the more time you give to the runner to start making your ice layers redundant. While some corporation decks play cheap ice to try and force a transition from Phase 1 to Phase 2 as early in the game as possible, some corp decks run the opposite strategy and use big, expensive-to-break ice like Tollbooth, Archer, Heimdall, and the like to raise the bar the runner has to reach before they can really have efficient routes through to the corpse servers. Whether you're trying to get into Phase 2 quickly or prolong leaving it, most corpse strategies involve making Phase 2 as long as possible. For runners, the objective is to set the rig up as quickly as possible and force the game into Phase 3. And if criminals and anarchs are the runners who most frustrate the corp in Phase 1, it's shapers who are the best at assembling a dominant rig in super-fast time to get into Phase 3. I'll just insert here. He's about to refer to a couple of cards that don't come along until the third data pack and even the first deluxe expansion. But even in the core set, Shaper has Diesel to draw to find its tools, Rabbit Hole to thin its deck to make tools easier to find, Modded to install its tools more cheaply, Tinkering to extend the ice, uh, utility of its icebreakers. So those tools are there. Back to the article. 
This is where your self-modifying codes and test runs help the shapers to assemble a suite of icebreakers more quickly than simply having to draw to find them. While criminals and anarchs often put their faith in Crypsis to break all types of ice, but then need to find a strong supply of cash to keep Crypsis fed with credits. 3. Endgame Advantage Runner Phase 3 is the endgame. It's where the corp has ice installed and resed, and the runner has ice breakers installed and fueled. It's a battle between the two economies. The runner can break through anywhere, so long as they have enough cash, and all the corp can do is make it more and more expensive to do so. Unfortunately for the corp, it becomes more and more expensive to install extra layers of ice, so the endgame battle is weighted in the favor of the runner, who doesn't have to spend their clicks on installing more and more ice breakers. The corp needs a plan for the endgame, which is where many of the fast advance strategies come in, such as San San City Grid or Biotic Labor. With it becoming increasingly difficult to secure, a remote server long enough to advance and score agendas, the ability to install and score in one turn becomes invaluable. Other approaches are cards that will temporarily keep the runner at bay for a turn. Corporate Troubleshooter or ASH2X3ZB9CY are good examples. But without that, the corp has to distract the runner and make him use his cash on runs that don't matter leaving them short when an agenda is on the line. For the runner, the object of the endgame is simply to take advantage of all the hard work you put in while building your rig. You can focus on central server assaults with medium, or simply build resources and wait for the corp to give you agendas to run at in remote servers. This is your time to shine. It doesn't mean the runner can't lose a game, especially when the corp is bringing its fast advance tricks but the odds are now stacked in your favor. Summing up. Hopefully this gives you a structure to start thinking about both your deck building and your games of Netrunner. If you're building a corp, how are you planning to expand the second phase of the game? Are you going to play cheap ice or expensive ice? How are you planning to squeeze out the last few agenda points once the game gets into Phase 3. If you're the runner, you have the opposite problem to worry about. Are you going to try and extend the early game, or abandon it completely and start planning for the end game right away? Trying to do both with one deck is very difficult because it's likely to make your deck quite inconsistent. You can't guarantee seeing your early game cards early and your late game cards late and are likely to get them the wrong way around. Account Siphon is great early on, but drawing it on turn 10 is a lot less impressive when the corp has a couple of resed ice over HQ already. The corp gets this same problem as well. Ice Wall on turn 10 probably costs the corp more to res and install than it does the runner to break past it, while Archer or Tollbooth in your opening hand does little to help you set up. Does this mean you can't play Ice Wall and Archer in the same deck? No, 
but you have to wait one way or the other, as wait, W-E-I-G-H-T. And particularly if you're trying to max the early game, then toll booths and archers are to be used only sparingly. That again is the article, The Three Phases of Netrunner, by David Sutcliffe, published on his blog, The Satellite Uplink, October 6, 2013. Uh, the link is in the show notes. The Maker's Eye. Focused on the artwork of Netrunner, we've previously talked about two of the artists that we see a lot of work from, Liga Smilschkane and uh, Matt Zeilinger. Here's a third one that we see uh, is very prolific, Adam S. Doyle. Uh, he's the one who, if you watched that YouTube video, the interview I referred to back in episode three, he's the one that conducted the interview. In the reboot card pool, uh, Mr. Doyle has 59 different cards, 110 in the Fantasy Flight and NSG full card pool. Now, the vast majority of his work is in the virtual space of the game, programs, ice, and so on. That's also true of Liga, and I guess that kind of highlights a bias that I have because it's those really, often they are more uh, abstract, like Wall of Static is one of his, of one of Adam Doyle's. So they're more abstract, often much more colorful. And uh, there's something about the virtual, the programs, the ice, and so on that catch my attention more, I think. In the course that Adam S. Doyle drew for Medium, Aurora, Wall of Thorns, Shadow, and Wall of Static. In What Lies Ahead, he did Peacock. And there will continue to be more from him. One notable uh, coming up in a future set is the Cutlery series. Uh, spooned and forked and knifed and eater. He's the one that did those. He calls them the utensil series. I will include links to uh, a couple of different things in the show notes. One is a YouTube video posted in mid-2020 called Complete Android Netrunner Illustrations. And it's like a seven-minute video that just kind of uh, is a slideshow, more or less, of many, or is as complete, all of the cards, the artwork that, that you, was used by Adam Doyle for uh, the Netrunner card game. Again, there are dozens. And I'll include a link to his website, which is more extensive than those of the last two artists I highlighted. He's got work that isn't Netrunner. I'm going to link specifically to the Netrunner page because here there's even some, he provides some background like, uh, for example, on Medium, which is like this greenish, to me it looks like a vase with uh, some tentacles coming out of it. But he shares what the art guidance was that he received and then, again, some early sketches of how he tried to share that, not just with Medium, but with several other cards. It's really interesting. So I encourage you to take a look at it. And if you want to support his work, you can buy many art prints of the work that he has done there at his store. Red Herrings is where I have to own up to a mistake that I've made previously. 
And this will be a fairly brief segment, not necessarily because I make so few mistakes, but just that very few have been pointed out to me. So again, point out mistakes and I will fix it. For example, a user Gaslight via the Discord in the 2.1 channel mentioned this about my last episode. He said, you mentioned IPO was brought in with no change, but it actually has a two influence cost now. Pretty significant. Yeah, yeah, I missed that one. So IPO is an eight cost neutral operation. It is terminal, which means you either play it as the last action of your turn or you play it as the last action of your turn whenever you play it. And so it's eight cost, you gain 13 credits. So it's a five credit gain. The change made by Reboot that I missed is that it was zero influence, and now it is two. That is a massive change for a neutral card. I don't know if this discussion in the Balance Discussion channel was prompted by me mentioning that, but otherwise it seems kind of coincidental. Uh, Goblin Mode made this comment. IPO, what am I missing? To influence for that when restructure exists? Now, for reference, restructure is a 10-cost neutral operation that will gain you 15 credits. What's the difference? IPO is 8, gains you 13. Restructure is 10, gains you 15. They both give you 5 credits. Well, IPO's restriction, that it is terminal, is supposed to be the thing that outweighs it, but in fact, it's not that big of a hindrance. So now, with it going from zero to two influence, well, there's restructure, and that's the question. Two influence for that when restructure exists. That prompted a discussion that if you want to go find it in the Balanced Discussion channel, it starts on June 15th, 2023, at 2.55 p.m. Eastern Time, and uh, goes on for quite a bit. I'm just going to pull out a couple of comments. The big boy said, is actually a massive difference. It's funny because there are solid contingents on IPO of, ugh, this goes in every deck 3x. And why would I ever play this? Which is great. Muryu says, IPO goes in every deck 3x, for the record. Or it did as zero influence. And on the topic of going in every deck three times, Rusty Knight says, same with hedge fund, so what? For two influence, there is zero reason to pick it over restructure. Now it can be restructure four to six, but it's never going to be included before that. To which Muryu said, are, are you serious? And the big boy has said, LOL. Like I said, very divided opinions. Yeah, that's IPO and restructure are both in the pool. IPO was pulled from terminal directive. It's a terminal operation. But uh, you're not going to run either one of those if you're following along with this podcast. We're not going to cover them in the, the actual stretch of the show until way down the line. But, of course, if you want to get in on the fuller card pool, as I've said before, that's what the Discord server is for. You go to the Discord server and you can play, you look for games with any of these. You can join any of the leagues, the Constructed League, the Pre-Constructed League, the... Uh, LCG-style league that's there. Or you can, of course, join my group, the 2.1 group, which is following the release schedule that this show is on, a new data pack every month. 
Many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. The music is from Alexi Action, the website, which currently just redirects to the Reboot Project homepage. I'm working on it. I was looking at it right before I started recording, and I, I got to find some inexpensive way to create a website because I'm not going to spend uh, $12 a month on this website. Anyway, it's netrunner2.1.com. You can play online at retechie.fun, but if you want to really find the game, I recommend going on to the Discord. And uh, the link for that is in the show notes as well. You can reach me on Discord or BoardGameGeek or Reddit, I guess, though at this moment in mid-June of 2023, uh, the Netrunner group is gone because of protests over Reddit's practices. Anyway, my username is Auberman. There's also a BoardGameGeek thread for the podcast and group. You can join, you can weigh in there. And my email address is anreboot2.1 at gmail.com. Nobody told me different, so the Astroskip pilot program this time around will just be the next section of the Worlds of Android on page 8, Archived Memories. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Archived Memories Can a machine think? Can it reason, compare, contrast, and respond? What are the parameters for true intelligence? The first experiments with thinking machines were limited by how large a database the programmer could build for his weak artificial intelligence to reference. Such an AI was inherently flawed. It was unable to learn, adapt, or feel. All that changed with the discovery of brain mapping. Brain mapping technology began with 21st century projects like the Human Brain Project and the Brain Initiative. The research overcame traditional limitations and enabled neuroscientists to map a human brain's physical structure, electrical impulses, and chemical changes in real time. Breakthrough technologies in supercomputer processing allowed this data to be compiled and emulated in a brain tape, an incredibly complex digital model of a person's personality, skill set, and even memories. The process is not perfect, and producing exact copies is still out of reach. But every day, the corpse come a little closer. Brain tapes allowed for more advanced or strong AI to evolve, AI that was capable of adapting to its environment and learning from experience. Haas Bioroid discovered how to customize a brain tape via neural channeling to create the complex behavioral programs utilized by a Bioroid's optical brain. Nanobots can rewire the optical brain to learn and adapt like human brains can. Genteki developed neural conditioning techniques by reverse-engineering the brain tape 
to stimulate the brain until it resembled the model. Cloned brains, as organic structures, retain the human brain's innate ability to create new neural connections without the need for nanobots. Brain mapping and taping services are available to those who can afford it. Many RISTIs voluntarily have their minds backed up in the hopes that one day exact replicas will be possible. Megacorps lure others with huge incentives, licensing copies of the finest minds for their archives and product lines. Making copies without consent is illegal, but rumors of black bag kidnappings and elite abduction teams abound. Synthetic Life Android Having the form of man. Science fiction made flesh. Are they humanity's greatest creation or its grossest error? The answer depends on whom you ask. The only certainty is that androids are here now and they are not about to go away. Two distinct subtypes of android currently exist the bioroid and the clone, manufactured exclusively by Haas Bioroid and Ginteki, respectively. Other companies, such as Cyber Solutions and Al Jazari Android, have also tried to create versions and subtypes of their own, but only Haas Bioroid and Ginteki have successfully implemented brain tapes to create true artificial intelligences. Bioroids are thinking machines. Their robotic bodies house complex optical brains and quantum processors. Although many bioroid models possess a covering of synthetic skin, common features like silver eyes and cabling at joints mean no one would ever confuse a bioroid for an actual person. Clones, however, look almost human. Grown in specialized vats, a clone only differs from a true human by the barcode printed on its neck. Many humans are discomfited by the semblance of humanity presented by clones and synth-skin bioroids, so both Ginteki and Haas Bioroid take great pains to mitigate this so-called uncanny valley effect. Androids exist everywhere in society, from the bioroid waiters in high-class restaurants to the clone miners in the helium-3 strip mines on Luna. Anywhere there's a job that needs doing, there seems to be an android to perform it. However, humanity still dominates fields such as the arts, research and development, and corporate leadership and decision-making. No one is quite willing to let an android decide the fate of a corporation worth billions. Not yet. But androids easily fill out low-level positions like accountants, clerks, and receptionists, not to mention manual labor and high-risk jobs. This proliferation of androids 
coupled with the lower costs of maintaining Android staff over human workers, has led to a sharp divide in opinion over these labor solutions. With more and more people being put out of work by Android replacements, a growing sense of dissatisfaction has swelled into outright hostility toward Androids. The lobbyist organization Humanity Labor and the radical group Human First have capitalized on these attitudes and seek to limit or outlaw the spread of simulant labor. Attacks against androids are not considered a high priority by many law enforcement agencies. Because they are manufactured synthetically, androids are classified as property, not people. So any violence inflicted on them is mere vandalism, not assault or murder. However, this has not stopped simulant rights groups like the Liberty Society from trying to get androids recognized as true human beings in the eyes of the law and society. Unfortunately for them, both Haas Bioroid and Jinteki have a stake in maintaining their bottom line, and by extension, the status quo.